I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Acts chapters 12, 13, and 14. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We begin in chapter 12 with James being killed and Peter in prison, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now this is Herod. He's the Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, the local governor or king during the time of Jesus' birth. Herod Agrippa I, like his grandfather, was the puppet king, really just a governor employed by the Roman Empire. His main job, as he saw it, was to keep his job and live in luxury. So how do you go about doing that? Well, easy. You keep the Jews contented. Killing James and arresting Peter seems to fill that bill. Now, this is the Apostle James, who's the son of Zebedee and brother of John. He was the first of the twelve apostles to be martyred. Incidentally, it was Herod Antipas to whom Jesus was sent by Pilate on the night before his crucifixion. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, so it was Herod the Great at the birth of Jesus, Herod Antipas at the crucifixion of Jesus, and Herod Agrippa I in this passage. All of them bad men. Now, the reference to Easter in verse 4 in the King James Version is translated from the Greek word Pascha. In every other instance in the New Testament in the King James Version, it's translated Passover, as it is here in the New King James Version. As a matter of fact, Easter was not celebrated in the first century A.D., and certainly Herod, who claimed to be of Jewish descent, would have had no regard whatsoever for a holiday that commemorated the resurrection of Jesus Christ on a Sunday— but would have suspended activity for the Jewish Passover. We see in verse 3 mention of the associated festival with the Passover, that of unleavened bread. Since a great many Jewish visitors were in Jerusalem during this annual festival, Peter's arrest and James' execution would have been widely circulated news among the Jews. Herod's goal. Here's Peter, outspoken evangelist for the Christian movement, being marched away by a squad of four soldiers to prison. To those who hate Christians, it just doesn't get any sweeter than that. In Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, we see what happens once Peter was locked up. Verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. 
So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Well, I always say there's no cure like sea cure. Well, actually, that's an old Marine Navy saying, speaking of securing everything in its place on a ship so it doesn't shift. After Peter's arrest, he is secure. You can't get any more secure than two chains on Peter's body while sleeping between two guards with additional guards at the door of your cell. It'd take a miracle to spring someone from that kind of bondage. Hang on. It's time for a miracle. The delivering angel even gives him time to get dressed appropriately before they just walk out of jail. That's right, just walk out. Nobody was more surprised than Peter. He thought he was having a vision, we see in verse 9, and he didn't fully appreciate the reality of his freedom until he was free on the streets, as we see in verse 11. Meanwhile, there was a prayer meeting going on. Verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Well, everyone's gathered at John Mark's house. He's probably the writer, by the way, of the Gospel of Mark. They're praying for Peter's release. Rhoda comes to the door when Peter knocks. She recognizes him, but instead of letting him in, she runs to tell the crowd gathered there praying for his release. Verses 15 and 16 are just way too humorous not to quote. It says, But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now, let's go over this again. What is it exactly that these folks were praying for? I mean, weren't they actually praying for Peter? Now, verse 19 indicates that the guards really got a bad deal as a result. How did all you guys lose your one prisoner? Herod decrees that these incompetent guards should be executed. Incidentally, Peter directs them to get word to James and, it says, the brethren. This is James, the brother of Jesus and head of the Jerusalem church. Peter heads northwest to the coastal city of Caesarea, about 55 miles away from Jerusalem. From this time forward, Peter only appears in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. That's about 15 years or so after the founding of the church in Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 20 of chapter 12, 
we find the demise of King Herod. Verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. The people of Tyre and Sidon show up before King Herod for a handout. They needed Herod to provide food for their land 100 miles or so north of Jerusalem. That was on the coast in modern-day Lebanon. Herod gets all dressed up and addresses the people. When he finishes speaking, the folks start yelling, The voice of a god and not of a man. Some people will say anything when they're looking for a handout. Nah, he's not a god, just a vain old man who loves the limelight. God kills him. A pretty gruesome sight. Must not really be a god after all. Acts 12.24 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. Now, if you're keeping track, this is where Paul's first missionary journey begins, right here in Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Saul and Barnabas pick up another partner here, John Mark. This John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Roman name. Most scholars consider him to be the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So the church at Antioch, after prayer and fasting, decides to send out missionaries, Barnabas and Paul. We first saw Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. He was the Levite who got saved. Then he sold a piece of property and brought the proceeds to the apostles for distribution. He's also the one who introduced Saul to the apostles after his conversion. Here we see what we commonly know as Paul's first missionary journey. Now, chapter 13 is a turning point in the book of Acts. It's from this point forward that Paul replaces Peter as the dominant figure. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 4, Paul calls upon God to blind a man named Elymas, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. 
And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Bar-Jesus was this magician's Jewish name. Interestingly, Bar-Jesus in Hebrew means son of Jesus, actually in Hebrew, son of Joshua. Elohim is said to be the interpretation of his name in Acts chapter 13, verse 8. Paul and Barnabas are trying to minister to the deputy of the country, a guy named Sergius Paulus, but Elymas is maliciously interfering. Paul calls upon God and prophesies that Elymas would become temporarily blind, and immediately that's what happens. Now that'll catch the attention of some folks. Well, that's enough for Sergius Paulus. He gets saved. Notice where their evangelistic efforts took place, right there in the synagogues. The beginning of a transition is seen in verse 9 regarding Paul's name. Saul was his Jewish name and Paul his Roman or Gentile name. Both were given him at the time of his birth, but after the Jews reject his preaching in chapter 13, verse 46, then he begins to use his Gentile name in the predominantly Gentile settings where he ministers in the last half of the book of Acts. In chapter 13, verse 13, it's time to head west. Verse 13, now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Pergam and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of forty years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will." From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Well, Paul and Barnabas by now are way out of the traditional preaching zone. They've gone over 300 miles across the Mediterranean into Antioch of Pisidia. John Mark leaves them and heads back to Jerusalem. So here is Paul, all dressed up in his pharisaical garb. He's called upon to speak to the audience in yet another synagogue. Well, hang on, folks. This message is going to be different from anything that you've ever heard. There's an important clue regarding Jewish history in verse 20. It says, After that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. The wording in the King James Version and the New King James Version attempts a translation on verse 20 that creates an incorrect impression. That rendering leaves one the impression that the period of the judges was 450 years, which is not correct. That directly contradicts 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, clearly declaring there that the lapse of time between the exodus from Egypt in 1445 B.C. until the fourth year of Solomon's reign in 966 B.C. was 480 years. 
Both cannot be correct when Acts 13.20 is translated such. In fact, the Greek construction of verse 20 is accurately, word for word, translated like this. And after these things, about 450 years, he gave judges until Samuel the prophet. Translated accordingly, we then see that the judges appear after 400 years in Egypt, plus 40 years in the wilderness, plus 10 years of Canaan conquest. That's the 450 years specified in this verse. So the 450-year period refers to the time between captivity until the beginning of the judges, not the length of the period of the judges themselves. That period could not have been more than 350 years. And actually, you can calculate it out to be exactly 346 years when this declaration by Paul is considered. Paul's message follows along the lines of an undisputed Jewish history lesson. Well, that's until he transitions from the Messianic promise of David in verse 22 to the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ in verses 23 and following. All done within one sentence. That'll get their attention. Incidentally, notice Paul's testimony regarding King David in verse 22. That's where he declares on behalf of God and says, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. This declaration regarding King David provides the basis for what we know as the Davidic covenant. Even though David had his faults, he was a man after God's own heart, first mentioned even before David was king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. If you'd like to know more about the Davidic Covenant, then look at the article that I've written called The Davidic Covenant in the topic section of BibleTrack.org. As we continue reading with verse 24, Paul continues his message, and he ties it into the Old Testament. Verse 24, After John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption." Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. 
Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, we see Paul speaking to an all-Jewish audience in the synagogue. His goal here is to show that Jesus is the Messiah for whom they'd all been waiting. They listen intently. Since these Jews are far away from Jerusalem, they don't receive the crucifixion of Jesus by Jewish leaders with the same level of rage as their Judean counterparts. Everything seems to be going well until we get to verse 32. Then the controversy, the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. He starts by saying that Jesus fulfills Psalm 2-7. That verse says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In verse 34, he quotes a portion of Isaiah 55.3. That verse says, Incline your ear and come to me, hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. This was to show that the Davidic covenant must be fulfilled in someone who is everlasting, in that David himself had died and not resurrected. Then in verse 35, he quotes Psalm 16.10. That verse says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. This verse Paul quotes to validate Christ's resurrection from the dead as an essential part of the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. Paul then tops off the message in verse 41 with a warning to the hearers from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. That verse says, Look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. In other words, you better not reject this message of the Messiah. Well, the message was a hit. Well, not everybody liked it. The people wanted to repeat, but the influential Jews, well, they didn't want to repeat. They pull out their big guns against Paul and Barnabas in verse 50, where it says there, The Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women. Watch out when the women get upset. Notice Paul's declaration in verse 46. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This marks a turning point in Acts, even a turning point in church history. That's when Paul and Barnabas make a decision to turn toward the Gentiles with their message. 
Paul quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6, in verse 47 of this passage, when he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So, they're off to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, verse 51 tells us that Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet against them. This was a Jewish gesture of scorn and disassociation usually practiced when Jews left a Gentile country. Ironic, huh? As we now move into chapter 14 of the book of Acts, we see that Paul and Barnabas get mixed reviews in Iconium, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. All of these places where they're preaching are in modern-day Turkey. Next stop is Iconium. Verse 1 indicates a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. The people who seem to like the message, they really like it. But those who don't, well, well they just want to stone them. Tough audience. They stayed and preached there for a while before departing, despite the growing intensity of the dispute between the Jewish leaders and those who responded to Paul's preaching. It's interesting how these antagonistic Jewish leaders stirred up these Greeks. The Greeks also had a rich heritage of tradition. It would appear from verse 2 that the Jewish leaders intentionally incited friction between those Greeks who had not received Christ and those who had. Just like their counterparts in Judea, these Jewish leaders had no scruples. Talk about the mother of all misunderstandings. That's what we see in verses 8 through 18 of chapter 14. Verse 8, And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So Paul's first act in Lystra is to heal a crippled from birth man. Everybody's very impressed. Now Paul and Barnabas have found receptive ears in Lystra. 
rave reviews from the people. Well, too good, actually. The people spontaneously declare Paul and Barnabas to be Greek gods incarnate. Before Paul can successfully dispute this acclamation, the local Zeus priest brings sacrifices to make before them. Hey, Paul, it's not nice to disrespect Zeus. That could be trouble. And sure enough, trouble follows. It seems that Paul and Barnabas can't seem to hit a happy medium here, from rejection in Iconium to too much acceptance in Lystra. And then we see in verses 19 to 23 how that a crowd can turn on you. Verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Well, here's the thing about crowds. They're just not very dependable. They'll be exuberant in your favor one moment, and then they're ready to stone you the next. And that's the case with these folks in Lystra, one day ready to proclaim Paul and Barnabas as gods, and now they stone Paul and leave him for dead outside the city. But was he really dead? Well, I don't know. Actually, Paul didn't even know for sure. I'm relatively certain that this is the occasion Paul spoke of, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10, through 10, when he proclaims that he did not know whether he was, he says, in the body or out of the body. They did, in fact, leave him for dead. Experienced stoners, well, they would know dead. I think they'd know dead. Anyway, I'm convinced that the whole episode Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 takes place right here following this ugly Lystra episode. But this didn't slow Paul and Barnabas down. After being stoned, Paul gets up and heads into Derby, verse 20, with Barnabas. It's interesting, though, that Paul leaves Derby and backtracks through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Hey, once you've been stoned and left for dead, how much worse can it get than that? They went back through those same cities and discipled the new converts, establishing churches and appointing elders. Notice that Luke points out the prayer and fasting that accompanied the appointment of those elders in verse 23. It's obvious that Paul wanted to make an impact on these elders regarding the gravity of the office to which they had just been appointed. And then we see in verses 24 through 28 that now it's back to Antioch in Syria. Verse 24, And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Well, it had been a great missionary trip. Now they're back home with the believers in Antioch, that's the one located in Syria, north of Israel. Mission trip to Turkey accomplished. Incidentally, verse 27 is rather significant for us when it says, now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Certainly Jesus had commissioned that Gentiles should be evangelized in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, 
and Peter opened that door while at the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. However, from Acts chapter 13, verse 46 and forward, Paul fully embraces the task of ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. And I should point out at the end of today's podcast that this marks the end of Paul's first missionary journey. Oh, one more thing. If you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, you probably noticed that there's a map showing Paul's first missionary journey. shows the places to which he visited and the route that he took to get there. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.